Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. everyone. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you all know that History of Everything is currently in a collaboration with the Lore Lodge and Aiden Mattis, where you can get both of our coffees to try, as well as custom mugs from each of our shows. So if that's something that interests you, make sure to go to the description and check out that link. Thank you all so much. Also, on that note, I would like to ask that if anyone out there listening to the podcast wants to go ahead and leave us a review, it really is something that is great and does help us. So whether it's on Apple or wherever it is that you get your podcast, please do leave us a review and I really would appreciate it. Thank you all and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. It's Takuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back to a particularly fun episode that we're going to be talking about here today because holy crap, is this going to be a bit of a wild one. Wild as in unexplored, undefined, unclaimed territory. D- don't look at me like that. We're talking about the Arctic, okay? <laughs> you could have just said we're talking about the Arctic no, today, guys. No, I couldn't have. I had to be dramatic. It's exactly what I'm going to do in any of these situations. You know me and you know my flair for... What is the word dramatic? That, yeah, I guess being a little bit dramatic. Yeah, that does tend to happen when I'm talking about things from history. But that's what happens when you're telling stories. You know, you just tend to do things. But Stephen said, Bell, professional storyteller. Literally, literally, yes, that's exactly what it is that I'm doing, both from the podcast, from the YouTube channel, from everything. I literally am a professional storyteller. It's kind of funny, you know, but yes, as I said, what we're going to be talking about today is one of the last unexplored regions on the face of the earth and the quest of the first person to reach it. Oh, and also before this episode begins, I should go ahead and clarify that this episode was actually written by the editor of our podcast, James Lopez. So James, my friend, thank you so much. This was a fascinating and incredibly fun story to tell. But first, of course, since we're going to be talking about storytelling, since we're going to be talking about the Arctic and this person's particular story, we're going to need to explain some of the context behind this because a lot of people aren't necessarily aware with what was going on at this time and why people were trying to explore the Arctic in the first place. Like, you think about it here. You're talking about a time over the course of the 19th century. This is the world in which the protagonist of the story that we're going to be talking about today, this is when he grew up. Our starting point is the year 1872. 
This is the late 19th century. And it's a very unique time when we're talking about things in history because this is the late Victorian era. And this is the time frame that would be considered the height of the British Empire. The European powers at this point have carved up and claimed most of Africa, of Asia, of pretty much everywhere in the world, and they're all racing to be the power or person in the case of private expeditions that are going to discover and, quote, civilize. And I'm going to say, quote, as in air quotes here, because that was the name in the game of what they would be trying to do in the 19th century, the accuracy of which in most cases was tenable at best. But that was the idea that many had, is that they wanted to find these places and claim them as their own. India, at this point, is entirely subservient to the British crown. And there's, like, Gandhi, the guy who'd become a huge figure going for British independence later on. He has just been born around this time. It is, it is a point in which the world is something that is a transitionary period between the old and the new as everything in the world has pretty much been gobbled up by just a couple key powers. So anyways, into this, the effects of Napoleon are still being felt all over the world, even generations later. And I know it sounds weird that we're talking about Napoleon and we haven't still done an episode on the French Revolution yet, which I definitely need to do because that's probably going to be a multi-part series. I already am calling it right now. But the effects of that are being felt everywhere across Europe, because as an example of this, if we talk about Sweden and Norway, which are going to become key countries at this point that we're going to need to talk about, these were actually united as one country. And they had been since around the year 1814, because it was back at that time that this is when the British and the Russians forced Denmark to give up control of Norway due to the fact that the Danes made the terrible mistake of allying with Norway or no, Norway, allying with uh, Napoleon which in turn, of course, really pissed off everyone else, naturally. So the Swedes also at the same time lost Finland. And so these two powers, in an effort to try and shore themselves up to unite against potential interference from the outside powers, from the great powers of Europe, Sweden and Norway decided to unite under one crown, under the crown of Sweden. So it was a, a personal union is the term that what that is. So they married each other? It, it's, you know, it, it, that's an interesting way well, to put it. It's, no, it my, is the equivalent of two countries marrying each other because they didn't become one country. My question here, and I think anybody who's not familiar with history would have the same question. If you have two countries with separate rulers, how do you decide which country's ruler becomes the ruler? Uh, if I recall correctly. Do you just kill one? No, what usually ends up happening is that one becomes subservient to the other. I in, would hate that. Yeah, yeah. Most people would hate that. You have to be desperate times type situation, I think. Yeah. But in this case, what ends up happening is it does become pretty much like a, a marriage, effectively, because the countries are still separate. But their policy and depending upon the level of unification that is achieved in there, uh, their national policy is the same. Right. What about their military? It can be the same. It entirely depends, right? So you can have a situation where, say, Norway still has its own independent domestic policy where everything else is controlled on the local level that is not controlled by Sweden, but its trade laws, its national politics, its military, all the other aspects were, would be controlled by Sweden. So it's a state. It pretty much does kind of become a state, but something that has much more nominal independence. That's what effectively a personal union is, because a personal union just means it is two countries ruled by the same monarch. Do they fist fight to choose which monarch? 
Again, it goes back to the question of really determining what happens. I'll give you an example of one of the things that happened historically. Like the most famous personal union of any of them is what created Spain because it was the personal union between the kingdom of Castile and Aragon. And so you had the, it was the king of Castile and the queen of Aragon. Wait, was it vice versa? Why am I drawing a blank on it now? Hold on. It was, no, it was the queen of Castile and the king of Aragon, right? Yeah, that's what it was. And those two, upon uniting, created the unified kingdom of Spain. Okay, that makes sense. They combined the two crowns. That's easily the most famous among all of them. But this is hundreds of years after that, right? And this is in 1872. It's the world in which our main character, Roald Engelbrecht Grabning Amundsen. It's when he was born. And like many Norwegian toddlers at the time, this kid was placed on skis nearly from the time that he could walk. He lived in the snow. He and his brothers would learn how to ski on the slope on the side of their driveway and would play games like chasing other children around in the snowy seaside town that they lived in of Borge, Norway. Everything about them had to do with the snow because that's just where you are here at this point in history and in that place. And so the young Amundsen, the family that he was born into, was a family of shipbuilders and captains. And so success in this family, this was something that was measured by how far you had to go in order to fulfill your duty, how hardy you were, how strong you were, how stubborn you were. And these were a very hardy people. They were adapted to living in a greater form of harmony with nature. They were constantly dealing with lots of snow, very little sunlight for long periods of time. These windswept fjords that they lived in surrounded them. And Amundsen, he was the fourth son in the family, and his mother did not want him to go into the family business. She didn't want him to be a simple sailor or anything like that. No, no, no. She wanted him to be a doctor. Which I guess is the story of many parents and children when talking about things in history. Though, again, we're talking about a doctor in the 19th century. So there's, uh, there's a like little a bit Like a medical doctor or a yeah. doctor of sailing? Medical doctor. Definitely a medical doctor in this case. She, she wanted him to have nothing to do with the ocean at all. Because, fourth son, she placed all of her hopes in him. Which was going to be a little bit of a problem for him. A lot of pressure? Well, not he only came a lot under of pressure? pressure, but it's not what he wanted to do. Like, he was an obedient child. He did what he could for years in order to try and help this dream. But the path that his mother tried to force him down, he hated it. And so over time, as he grew up, by his teenage years, he kind of hated her. Like, his relationship with his mother heavily soured. I'm assuming this was the time before, you know, the psychology of don't force your hopes and wishes onto your child. It's the 1800s. Yes, this, this is, is my way dream, before that. Mom, it's yours. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is way before any of that. And even then, it, it doesn't matter. It's the 1800s. You do what your parents says or else you get... You know, I don't even know what kind of sound, listen, I don't know what sound effect I'm supposed to create in that scenario. A bunch of people are probably reeling back right now thinking, oh man, I just got a blast of static in my ear. No, that was me trying to make a sound effect for a kid getting smacked. And I don't know what it is that I should actually say there because I don't smack my daughter. So I have no idea what that would sound like. So anyway, fast forward, he is 15 years old. Rold goes and reads a book about the doomed 1845 Franklin expedition. This is the one that was searching for a route through the famous Northwest Passage in Canada, and he becomes entirely focused and amazed 
at the stories of explorers that are surviving in the wilderness and then returning to tell the tale. This was incredible to him. Though, never mind the fact that we're going to need to talk about this. Uh, I'm pretty sure we will need to do a episode specifically on it. The Franklin expedition did not go well. I'm telling you this right now. Yes, they returned to live or they returned alive to tell the tale, but not all of them. Around half of the people died over the course of that expedition, which is not good in the first place. And the only way the captain was able to survive was by eating his own shoes. Like. His shoes, his shoes, his leather shoes. Yeah, because you could in times of famine, people would eat leather. I mean, I get why you could eat leather, but. Do you boil it, Bert? How do you soften? Is it like beef jerky? Yeah, almost. Yeah, except way worse. Yeah. It'll be a little bit salted from the foot sweat, I'd assume. So I can, I can understand the flavor palette. I'm just worried about the logistics of chewing it. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, that, that was kind of one of the things is that you'd have to just sit there and chew it for a long time. You would have to, yeah, cut it into strips, boil it if you can, and then eat them. Yeah. All right. I'll write that down. <laughs> so Amundsen would later write about this saying, quote, I read them with a fervid fascination, which has shaped the whole course of my life. And it really did, because he decided right then and there that he wanted to be an explorer. That's what he wanted to do, which is a very dangerous inspiration to have, especially going into this time period. But his mother, no, nope, she doesn't want him to do any of this. But that's not going to matter, because this is going to sound like really dark when I say this right now, whether you call it fortunate or unfortunate for him, it was fortunate based off his dreams, but it was definitely not a good situation overall is that when he's in his first year of medical school, his mother dies. And he sees this, it happens, and he immediately says, screw this, and then drops out of university. Not out of mourning for her or anything, but literally, oh, hey, my mom is dead. Now I can do what I want, and she can't make me do anything. So yeah, that, that's literally how Just that goes. Immediately drops out of university. Immediately drops out of university. Again, not out of the whole thing being a tragedy, but specifically because now he has the opportunity to do whatever he wants. Because then, you know what he does immediately after that? Sales? He, well, he goes sort of, yes. He immediately puts out like advertisements and does whatever he can to try and get on an Arctic exploration crew. He wants to get on a crew as fast as he possibly can. So he, he, he goes and gets in contact with the British consulate that was doing a lot of exploration to see if they had any planned expeditions that were going on. And he even places an ad in the Times, which is London's most respected newspaper. He puts out an advertisement trying to find people that he could potentially go on an expedition with. The man was desperate and serious about this. It's all that he wanted. Meanwhile, into all of this, another player is going to appear into the story, and that is Fridtjof Nansen. And Nansen was Norway's first great polar hero. To explain a little bit of the context for what this guy was, after um, like a few years earlier in 1886, Nansen was part of an expedition that was the first to cross Greenland, but it didn't exactly go well. They ran into some problems and would have an incredible story because people thought that they died. They thought that they died. And three years later, the group of Norwegian explorers just returned from the grave. No one had ever heard from them in that time period. And as they returned back, because remember, this is the day before GPS or cell phones or any of that. They immediately became national heroes when they returned on May 30th, 1899. And a young rolled 
was actually one of the thousands of people that were in the streets of Oslo cheering their return. And it's in that moment that the young Amundsen had a core memory developed that he would later describe as being the day that I wandered with throbbing pulses among the bunting and the cheers, all of my boyhood dreams reawoke to tempestuous life. For the first time, something in my secret thoughts whispered clearly and tremendously, if you could make the Northwest Passage. He was a teenager, and he found his idol. Everything that he did from that point on, he would try to emulate Nansen in every possible way that he could. And it was at that point, really, that Amundsen decided that he is going to level up his character as much as possible. He is going to try and get as much experience. He is going to try and develop as many skills as he possibly can. So he goes and becomes a merchant seaman and he learns to sail. He eventually earns his first mate certification. And finally, he ends up meeting his hero when he's serving aboard the ship, the Belgica, in June of 1897. And at this point, the two of them become friends, which is, that, that's pretty cool. He gets to meet his childhood hero, the one that would inspire him to do so much, and he actually ends up becoming friends with him. And while sharing his ideas for polar exploration, Amundsen actually impresses Nansen, who realizes this kid is incredibly enthusiastic, and he pays attention to everything that I'm saying and doing. And it was while serving on the Belgica, which was named because it served as the vessel for the Belgian Antarctic exploration, that Amundsen would have his first ever polar adventure. Except in this case, it wasn't actually the pole that he wanted to go to first or what they were expecting. The Belgica's mission was supposed to be to explore and report the scientific findings near and around the Antarctic Circle. And it would achieve this mission spectacularly. Um, well, I, I say that, but it's a little bit of a controversy and I'm going to kind of explain the context. We're still unsure of exactly how or why, but it is heavily presumed that the captain of the Belgica intentionally got his ship frozen in the ice in order to force the crew to have to overwinter in the Antarctic Circle. The big kicker, he did this without the knowledge or consent of the crew and forced them to go through with this in the first place. And it quite literally was not what they signed up for. So get this, it's like the equivalent of... Um, Imagine you're going on a class field trip, right? Like all the kids are so excited. They're going out to do a class field trip. Maybe it's something in high school with a biology teacher and you're going to catch some samples and your teacher suddenly decides that, hey, instead of just going here for a day or two, why don't we go off the trail in the middle of the Amazon rainforest or wherever and um, lose sight of the trail and be stuck out here for a couple months? You've obviously never been out collecting samples with a biology professor. Uh, I know, I know. I'm trying to say something that I'm pretty sure you could somewhat relate to considering your background like, and what Guys, you did. This way looks really, really good. Make sure your waders are fastened properly. And then you're like neck deep in a river somewhere in the middle of Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, I do remember when you would send me messages about what you were doing when you were like electrifying fish and whatnot to take the Electrofishing, you shock them. Yeah. So it just stuns them, I think, unless they're really small and then it does more than that. But that's not <laughs> the story we're here to tell. So, yeah, you get the idea of what I'm trying to say here. We don't precisely know, but it seems that the captain did this in order to force the crew to be there so that they could collect even more data and get an even better story out of all of it to be able to get more information. But anyway, it sounds a little bit odd. 
So we're going to need to take a little bit of a step back at this point and kind of explain how exploration and these research trips and whatnot, how they actually worked in the 19th century, because it is remarkably impressive and simultaneously invasive for what they would do. What do you mean invasive? As in they were going into territory that was completely unexplored in many places, like in the case of the Antarctic, and they would be trying to gather as much data and artifacts as they possibly could. Remember, we're talking about the 1800s. And so when we're talking about invasive, if they're going in and doing any kind of archaeological digs for any of those places, they don't have the techniques built up like we do in the modern day to be careful. Do you think that archaeological explorations are similar to what we see? You remember how we watched the documentary on the kings and the pyramids and the tombs they were oh like the kush kings yes yeah basically for the 25th dynasty but they kept yeah. saying looters were here looters were here what if they were just old-timey archaeologists bro like what if they weren't even looting they just didn't know what they were doing when they look at some of the sites in greece or other places in egypt yes that did happen and it's why those archaeologists did get better over time we could probably do a whole bunch of different stories on varying archaeological digs and the chaos that would ensue in many of them i'm pretty sure at one point we did a whole episode on the fossil wars Remember that? That was that was a year ago, I think, that we did that one. And that was some crazy crap because they were straight up sabotaging and breaking each other's dinosaur bones so that they couldn't submit them as having found them. That is wild. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, OK, let's um, let's take a little bit of a step back here for a moment and explain how exactly polar expeditions and things like that were funded. Right. So it, it's a little bit of a confusing thing. In order for people to be able to understand exactly why these explorations and whatnot would occur in the first place. See, back in the late 19th century, most of the lands in the world had been discovered and colonialism at this time was all the rage. Like it is the Victorian period. It is the 19th century. This is the point in which the world was going to be gobbled up. But because most places had already been discovered, this meant that most of the land in the world had also already been claimed by one power or another. So going into the situation, the question becomes, how was a colonial empire supposed to gain any more possible acclaim or prestige? Well, by exploring stuff, by conquering things, by naming these places after themselves. This is exactly why to this day there are still places in Antarctica that to this very day are named Princess Elizabeth Land and Queen Maud land like that stuff straight up. It comes from this time where it wasn't just a matter of conquering. It was trying to find as many last little redoubts and places as possible in order to be able to name them and lay some kind of degree of claim to them. This is also why you're seeing it's not just a matter of claiming an entire swath of land like, OK, we've claimed this entire region in Africa, right? What about exploring the interior of it? Like we know what our border is. We can go around the entire border, but we have no idea what's actually on the inside of a lot of this. So they were going in and finding every mountain, finding every river, finding every water source from that river. Like the, the huge thing for the Nile and the, um, the, the, the discovery of the source of the Nile. That was a huge thing during this time. Uh, trying to discover the Arctic. All of these things are, are matters of prestige for countries to say, hey, we were the first to do this. We are the most advanced and civilized and greatest because we're capable of doing all of these things that had never before been done with humanity. And that was the goal of all of it. 
And so every major country at this time had their own respective geographic societies. And at many points, these expeditions would be funded by that society or its members, or perhaps the state government in the respective countries would contribute to them. Now, they still needed sailors. And for that, typically men would be handpicked, sometimes along national lines, like we have to make sure that it is a crew that is entirely made up of Englishmen who are doing this because English pride. You know, they're, they're going to be doing that precise kind of thing. But many times it was really hard to do this because there's only a certain amount of very skilled people with very specific skill sets for a specific type of thing that you're trying to explore. Like how many people are you reasonably going to say are in a certain part of the world that are going to be able like England, as an example, how many explorers are you going to be able to find that are genuinely that good at going through the Amazon? England is not exactly famous for its rainforests, after all. That's not really a thing. But in a place like Norway or Sweden, if you're talking about the Arctic, you're talking about snow and mountains and icy, like, fjords and all these different frozen waterways, maybe you got a little bit of something there. So it was oftentimes difficult to get these people, which is precisely why they would hire out sailors with experience or experts. And that is how a Norwegian ended up getting onto a Belgian polar exploration ship. Because they needed to outsource some of it because they just simply didn't have the people to do so. Anyway, back to the Belgica itself and the uh, pickle that it was currently in. An icy pickle. An ice sea pickle. An icy pickle. An icy ice icy pickle. Okay. <laughs> It's, you know how there's it's like, an icy icy pickle. Yeah, you know you know how there's like you know how there's like sea cucumbers and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of it here in a way that I can make a joke of this that would be funny because it's like a sea cucumber, but it's ice, so it's an icy babe, pickle. Babe, I have a secret that's gonna blow your mind. Yeah, nobody is here for your comedy. <gasps> I, you know what? <laughs> okay, you're gonna cry in the car. Moving on then now, when we're talking about this place, it's a frozen ice hellhole. It <laughs> I really you were is. gonna do it again. No, <laughs> I'm, not. I'm not. The Belgica is stuck, right? And the question then becomes, why would the captain intentionally do this? Well, ironically enough, from all this, the rest of the crew is pissed off, but Amundsen would go and actually thank Nansen for this. You see, Nansen had sailed a ship into the Arctic Circle and intentionally got in frozen sea ice in order to try and see if he could ride the sea currents. And he did this to prove that the sea currents flowed in certain ways around the poles and that one could technically just drift with the currents to float over the North Pole. Now, it quite hadn't worked out as well as what Nansen had expected it to, and they didn't reach the pole, but they did get closer than anyone else ever had at that point. So, you know... They got some information out of it, and that's kind of the whole point of these scientific exploration trips. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Anyway, so the Belgic skipper, Captain Adrian de Gerlach, right? This guy had heard of Nansen's exploits, has pretty much anyone who knew anything about polar exploration. Like, this is just something that you knew this guy's name. And he decided to recreate the feat. But that did not work. Instead, what ended up happening is that he got his crew stuck in place for the whole winter, and they ended up becoming the first crew to have to overwinter in the Antarctic Circle. Their initial mission, aside from science, was to try and find a route through to the Weddell Sea. While attempting to do so, Gerlach had very likely intentionally sailed the ship deep into the pack ice. And this is controversial, as Gerlach denied this, but the Belgica had only entered the Antarctic Circle on February 15th, and after 20 separate landings and a lot of scientific study, they figured out a lot of things, suddenly, on February 28th, she was imprisoned in place, and one would think that an experienced captain who had avoided getting trapped in the ice for two straight weeks would see that, hey, maybe there's some signs here coming that we should probably get back out. But whether it's due to him being incompetent or bad luck, that doesn't matter. Gerlach was responsible for getting them stuck. The best part about all this? They had not been prepared for a winter stay in the Antarctic Circle. Not all the men had adequate winter clothing. They didn't have a lot of food. And what they lacked, and when they lacked a lot of here was even more than just regular food, variety and many essential nutrients. Like you could for a short amount of time. Like if you were going to be away for a couple weeks, you could live off of more simple foods and whatnot. Like right? your leather shoes. Like your leather shoes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Essentially, as long as you have foods for a certain amount of time period, even if it's deficient in many forms of nutrients, you can still survive. But the longer that you are there and the less of that variety of food that you have, the worse it's going to get for you. Like in the case, remember scurvy and all that from lack of vitamin C? How long was the winter? It's, it's actually, that's a good question here. When we're talking about also, stuff for the winter, because it's the Antarctic. So yeah. it's a lot longer than it normally would be. Also, I mean... It's the Antarctic. So <laughs> what's the really big difference between a normal Antarctic cold and Antarctic winter cold? Because either way, it's going to be chilly, a little bit nippy. A little bit nippy. Yeah, a little bit nippy. Their, their nips were in trouble. I'll tell you that much during this time. That was another joke. Okay, no, you're just ignoring me now at this point, the moment that I said that. <laughs> I'm looking up how long Antarctic winter is. Fair enough. But February through late August. February through August. So it has six months of daylight in its summer and six months of darkness in its winter. It has two seasons, summer and winter. Oh my God. Wow. Well, yeah, it's during that time period then that the ship's doctor of all people was going to prove to be extremely vital to the mission's success. But this also was not in the way that one would typically expect. It's just an overall insane story. See, Dr. Frederick Cook, this was an American surgeon, an explorer, and an ethnographer, which is a, a person that, system, uh, that systemically studies individual cultures. And he was a widower from New York, 
who had been the surgeon for Robert Peary's failed 1891 Arctic expedition. So he was very seasoned. He was aware of all the stuff that could happen and was prepared and knowledgeable about situations that have gone like upside down. They, they have gone, they are foobar. They are fucked up beyond all repair. Absolutely. And so Cook would recognize the same competence and fire in Amundsen that he himself possessed. And so he took the young first mate on as a protege of sorts. And Amundsen, just like all the stories for exploration, absorbed all of this information like a freaking sponge. He was fully ready to dive into it for all of the things that you would need to do to survive in a horrible situation. That was the stuff that he really wanted to learn. So, okay, they're suffering. It's the Antarctic. They are in an incredible amount of cold and just not good. So warm clothing has to be improvised from the materials that are available. On March 21st, 1898, Cook would write, quote, We are imprisoned in an endless sea of ice. We have told all the tales, real and imaginative, to which we are equal. Time weighs heavily upon us as the darkness slowly advances. The days were getting shorter and shorter until several weeks later, on May 17th, the perpetual darkness of polar night would set in, and it would last all the way until July 23rd. Cook, for his part, would stay sufficiently warm due to the fact that he did have a good amount of clothing. He had spent time living with the indigenous people of the Arctic, and he would adopt their clothing complete with sealskin clothes and a reindeer fur parka. So the man did know what was going on and was prepared. Amundsen would take note for that for the future because that was going to be incredibly valuable. And Cook would observe how Amundsen moved around so much more easily on his skis than on the snowshoes that they were typically using at the time. Because this is, this is that classic point of like, oh, well, we still need to walk. So they're using these snowshoes. But the problem is using snowshoes in that situation, unless you're trying to get up a slope or some other kind of thing, you're going to be in a situation where that uses way more energy. And when you're in a situation when everything is frozen and you do not have much food, the calories that you are able to store are going to be crucial for your life. So if you are wasting energy stomping around trying to do things in snowshoes, that's some trouble. But by doing things in skis, you're able to efficiently and easily move around in rapid time. In fact, Amundsen ended up being later on the first person to travel in Antarctica on skis, which was looked down by the British because, of course, that wasn't the proper way that you were supposed to do things. It was the smart way. Work smarter, not harder. Also, do you want to know, you want to guess how cold it is during Antarctic winter? Um, should I guess Fahrenheit or Celsius? I, you're, I don't you're, know what I would do. Whatever you want. I'm going to say minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Minus 76 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, I was somewhere minus close to 60 par. degrees Celsius. Oh. Yeah. So um, I don't know what type of blanket you would need or coat, but preferably just don't be there in winter. Seal skin and reindeer parka. <laughs> I guess that's the answer that you would need. Yeah, this was um, this was a situation that was really dangerous. It really was. Up until this point, the captain seemingly had no idea how bad things were actually going to get. But Frederick Cook did know. He knew that they still lived in a day and age where they didn't know what caused scurvy. Like th that was still something that was the sailor's disease, but it wasn't something that had been cured yet in the sense like they didn't know precisely what caused it 
because scurvy, this was the real killer of sailors back on long voyages at this time. It is caused for anyone who is confused listening to this right now by a deficiency of vitamin C. And if you develop scurvy, oh God, be prepared to suffer. The symptoms include getting really weak, fatigue, being really sore, you know, just standard stuff that you'd expect from a cold. But then you start developing gum disease. Your teeth begin rotting and falling out. And then you start to, if you get even a cut, you can bleed very easily and you're not able to clot as efficiently. Meaning even a small like cut or something could be deadly. And like, uh, why can't I remember the name? What was the name of that disease that people could get where they're just, their blood is not able to clot? Hemophilia? Okay, yes. Oh God, why did I not remember that? Because that is something that was so common among inbred uh, royalty in You should know, Nicholas II. Yes, with oh wow, <laughs> thank you, Gabby. Guys, just for reference, um, he got the funniest YouTube comment the other day. Somebody was like, "Wait, why do you look like if Nicholas II became a secretary?" And <sighs> honestly, kind of accurate. Not gonna lie. Anyway, moving on from that, yeah, scurvy sucks. It really sucks, and you can very easily die from it. It was literally one of the most common killers for sailors throughout all of history. It really was. It was terrible. And so between the weeping sores, the constant infections, the lethargy, depression, mood swings, and all the other stuff that would accompany scurvy, the men were truly living in a freaking nightmare. Vitamins hadn't been discovered yet at this time, but the prevailing theory was that it did have something to do with diet. And so Cook would take matters into his own hands when he would organize a group that included Amundsen to bring back seals and penguins to eat trying to bring down as many of them as possible with his own shots. Cook would insist that the crew had to eat the animals and encouraged them to try different parts and then would observe how they felt and how they performed. Which led them to discover that there was something about the offal that staves off scurvy. And in case you're wondering, offal, that is the organs of the animal, which at the time typically were not eaten. So like if you had the intestines or the liver or like other stuff that you're not going to use the liver or other stuff as much, you're pretty much going to use more of the other meat. Things like that were ridiculously high in vitamin C and the other nutrients that this would cause the men who ate those parts of the animals to actually be able to recover effectively. Those who didn't eat the offal, like Captain Gerlach, who initially tried banning its consumption, they would only get progressively worse. In fact, Gerlach and some other sailors became so sick with scurvy that they wrote out their wills because they're like, well, crap, we're going to die. Imagine getting everyone stuck and then refusing to eat a little liver. <laughs> Please. Yeah, yeah, Gerlach exactly. is my favorite character. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want to. It's not my favorite thing. <laughs> I'm not going to have my... What would they have in Belgium at this time? I it guess people didn't here. like liver. Well, I mean, no, it really just depends. I'm not a big meat it. person, but if it was that or scurvy, I'm also guess thinking what about I'm how it is. They wouldn't have spices or anything like that. Like the, the equivalent was make a fire if you're not eating it straight raw and then just eat it. That's all that it was. At least it's not leather shoes. Yeah, he would end up leading his, like, eating his leather shoes. Like, I'm so sorry. At least it's not leather shoes. Yeah. So it's at this point that Cook and Amundsen had seen enough and they would end up taking command for the rest of the rest of the expedition. They didn't need anyone else that didn't know what they were doing to be in charge. And it's widely known that if it was not for Frederick Cook, 
a lot more men would have died that winter. And so when they came back to parades and applause, it was a glorious thing. And Alban said had gained incredible amounts of knowledge and experience that later on in life he was going to have to draw from. He also, from this, made a lifelong friend. A small side note when talking about this, there was a Norwegian cabin boy named Johan Koren that brought on board the ship's cat named Nansen in honor of Norway's greatest polar hero at the time. And Nansen would perform his duties with distinction, keeping the ship free of mice until his unfortunate death on June 22nd, 1898. He was a very good boy, and he ended up being buried in the Antarctic, one can only assume with full honors. And so it was that this trial by fire, if you want to say that, though considering that we're talking about this whole thing, it's more so ice, but either way, it is a trial by fire that really would teach Amundsen so many of the lessons that would serve to be vital on his future expeditions. He would learn that surprises in this scenario uh, might typically be a bad thing when it comes to exploration, and that if you don't have a plan, if you're not going to into something prepared, nature is not going to give two craps about showing you just how wrong you are. It is going to really, really screw with you. And so, okay, fast forward a bit of time. It's 1903. Amundsen has finally achieved his boyhood dream of finding a way through the Northwest Passage. And he plans and organizes a six-man expedition traveling on the fishing vessel, the Gyoa. And it was powered by a small 13-horsepower paraffin diesel engine, one of the first of its kind. Which I'm going to say this right now. If you are using something that is one of the first of its time as an experimental technology for an experimental trip, that is something that I am saying this right now. I don't have the balls to do. That is something that someone is going to have to test multiple times before I'm willing to step foot on that because the amount of times that I have covered something in history of technology or something going wrong because it's one of the first of its kind and then doesn't work out so well. There are many, many horror stories. We have a very recent horror story of that. Oh, yeah. Last month recent with the submersible. Yes. Experimental technology, man. Somebody has to do it, but. Yeah. And so Amundsen, though, he was more of a tech head, right? He was a guy who was always looking for the newest and best inventions and technology in order to try and help him achieve his goals. And it was during this expedition that he would meet the members of the Nitsilik Inuit population. These were the people in the Arctic Circle who would help him and he would end up spending a winter living among them. It was from them that he'd learn more about proper clothing for the climate, how to hunt wildlife better. Uh, Animal skin clothing would dry quicker and still keep you warm when it got wet. It also reduced sweating greatly. He learned how to use sled dogs to transport supplies. He was taught by a special igloo master mason, if you will, like a person who is an expert on how to build the ice block structures that would be crucial in that kind of environment to make shelter. And it was in this phase of his upgrades, his experience gaining, that you could say that Amundsen really came into his own. He was a quiet guy. He wasn't someone that was necessarily very sociable. But he knew what he wanted. He loved this stuff. And he was a smart, confident, and capable leader who was always going to listen to those who were in his command and not just dismiss their ideas, but always he would still maintain overall authority. He was the kind of guy that people wanted to follow because he was so sure of himself, but also simultaneously would listen to the people under him to actually be able to do things. He was a proper leader who was naturally inspiring by nature. And so after finishing the expedition, 
They sail on to Nome, Alaska. And it was here that Amundsen then hopped on a dog sled and rode 500 miles. 500. Because remember, Alaska is huge. So he would ride 500 miles to Eagle, Alaska, just to send back news home of his success. What he didn't know was that in the time that he'd been gone, Norway ended up achieving independence in 1905. When he had left, it was still under the rule and blessing of King Oscar of Sweden. And funnily enough, the Norwegians chose a constitutional monarchy for their own new government. Then apparently, I guess they really missed all the days when they had a Danish king. So they just ended up asking Prince Carl of Denmark to come in and be their king. So Carl from Denmark comes over and then takes on the name King Hakon VII. So he becomes Norwegian at that point. You could just ask another king to be your king. Oh, it happened all the time in history. Yeah, it all the time, especially if your king died without a proper heir. And there were all these nobles that didn't necessarily have the authority or power to take over the throne and they didn't want the country to fall apart. It was a very common thing to ask either a relative or another king of or a relative of that powerful king to come in and take over your throne for to increase relations. A lot of them were related anyway, right? Because they would Correct. just marry off to the other royal and just trade it back and forth. Correct. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he that guy would actually marry Queen Maud of the who the. <laughs> He would actually marry the Queen Maud that when we're talking about this is the person that that stuff in the Antarctic. Remember when we were talking names like Queen Elizabeth Land and Queen Maud Land? Yeah, that, that's what this whole thing is going to end up being named after. Just as a little spoiler tidbit sort of thing here. So Amundsen had left under the blessing of one king and then he returns and there's another one. But his people, the Norwegians, they are fully independent. And as an official country, again, it was going to have its first ever hero. I say first ever, but first ever since independence, really, at this time. So now it's time that we're going to need to talk about Amundsen's greatest accomplishment, the South Pole. Now, ironically, when we're talking about this, when he started planning it, the goal was actually not the South Pole. He was supposed to go to the North Pole, which had always been the dream that he had since he was a child. Then he learned that Robert Peary had made the trip successfully. And by that point, Amundsen had been planning the trip for quite some time. So he thought, crap, it's already been done. I'm not going to be the first person to be able to do this now. I, th what is the point in all this that I was doing? But why don't I instead just go to the South Pole? Because the North Pole has now been reached. Okay, but the South Pole hasn't. So all that planning, everything that he put into for this huge trip that he had been preparing for his entire life to do, that at the last second was taken from him. He just switched it to the other target. It's kind of funny when you look at it like that. So at this point, we meet the other key player in the story, Robert Falcon Scott, who was also known to his family by his middle name, which eventually was just shortened down to Khan. He was born into a family with a very long tradition in the British Navy. This guy was someone who his father worked as a brewer but his grandfather and four of his uncles had all served in the Royal Navy with distinction. And so from a young age, this is a guy who chose to follow in their footsteps. And he began his naval career in 1881 when he was only 13 years old. Mind you, that was actually something that was very common at the time when people would get these jobs and work from a young age. You could become a cabin boy. You could do all these other things where you start off on a ship, particularly with it when it comes to the Navy. You could start off on a ship from a very young age and work your way up. I'm going to point this out right now, but this is funny little detail in history. 
where oftentimes nobles would fudge their records a little bit by saying that, oh, if their family member was a captain on a ship, they would say that they had been a cabin boy or something from a much younger age than they actually were because certain positions or appointments that they needed to get required a certain number of years in the Navy. So even if you had only served on a ship for three years, uh, they could fudge it to say, oh, no, they'd actually been a cabin boy since they were like 10 years old, not 13. So they actually served six years. It's it's just one of those things that people would do in order to try and skirt the system. That's a fun little detail that I thought I would throw in there. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. But anyway, by the time that he'd reached his mid-20s, Scott's father had sold his brewery and he made a series of bad investments with the money and he ended up going bankrupt and then dying of heart disease. Not good. Scott was now the only one that was financially supporting his mother and his two sisters back home and he yearned for promotion to provide more financial security as well as bring honor and prestige back to the family name that had unfortunately been soured by his father. This was a time period where nearly every British explorer came from its crown jewel, the Royal Navy. There were also loads of officers that were jockeying for promotions with their own ambitious goals. And even today, the military service members stress quite frequently over whether or not their name is going to be shown at the end of the month on the list of those who've qualified to be a candidate for promotion. Think of it like this. Think of it like a list of high school basketball team or something like that, right? Your hopes, your dreams, and your plans could be demolished or made reality just by a single line on a piece of paper. And Scott felt that he had been passed up simply too many times, leaving this massive chip on his shoulder. Really, it's a testimony to his knowledge of where he fit in society that he proposed to his wife, Kathleen, who was a bohemian artist. And his mother objected, saying she wasn't of a high enough pedigree. Scott then countered that by essentially saying, well, uh, she's the best I can get. <laughs> Which, on, on a note, sounds kind of insulting to her, but I have to say that considering what had already happened to his father and the, um, the other issues that had ran into with his family, he was, all, he was the one that was supporting his mother financially. He was the one that was backing all of them. 
that's the equivalent of like, you know, if if something happened to your parents, they everything went horrible for them. They're forced to move into you and then they go, I don't like that boy you're dating. I, I don't think that that's a good idea. Like, I'm the one that's supporting you in everything. I am the head of the household in here. What are you talking about? But that is precisely what ended up happening with his mother. And he was like, no, she's the one I want. Our family is not in a good enough situation that I could do better. Scott is one of those men who could never seemingly be satisfied. And his choice in a wife was the perfect example. She was a socialite. She was a sculptor. She was a cosmopolitan woman that had a lot of ambition, power, and skill. Really, that was one that was going to be a perfect match for him. And so the overall approach at this time period, the British Empire had to exploration was one that, I'm going to say this now, it was full of hubris. It was a giant lumbering beast that would slowly approach its goals, secure in the knowledge that anything could be accomplished if you just did a couple things, all right? We could do anything. The world is our oyster. If we simply throw enough money, manpower, and resources at it, we could do all of it. There is nothing that is impossible. And it is that same philosophy that ended up plaguing the Franklin expedition. Sailors tasked with Arctic exploration lacked any semblance of real training or experience. And they were expected to just figure it out, do it, or die like a man. The British were famous for despising the use of dogs, sleds, and skis. They didn't want to do that. No, they wanted to do it the gentlemanly way, the old-fashioned way, the proper way. They were going to manhaul everything through the snow and use snowshoes. They didn't wear enough animal furs or skins and brought the same kind of prepared rations that Amundsen and Cook had found incredibly inadequate in Belgica because it just didn't have the nutrition that they needed, but it was the proper fare that you were supposed to have. This was at the Empire and its height. This was when the British Empire was its biggest and most glorious, but also arguably because it was so confident in itself that it was incredibly ignorant of when things could go wrong because it believed that it could simply do anything. And so Scott was placed in charge of this expedition to the South Pole by Sir Clarence Markham's, the president of the Royal Geographic Society in 1901. He took a ship called the Discovery down to the Antarctic Circle, and he did some great scientific studies and work there. But his ship eventually got stuck in the ice, and two other ships and explosives had to be used in order to get it out. And so during the whole ordeal, Scott's stubborn insistence on rigid naval formalities ended up bringing down morale amongst his men, and he didn't even realize it. His lack of perception would come to haunt him back again and again and again, because again, he just wouldn't listen to his men. That's not the proper way this is supposed to be done. We need to do it this way. This is how it works with the Royal Navy, and not actually taking into account that, um, yes, you're supposed to go into an exploration with a plan. Naturally, you have to do this, but you need to be able to adjust your plan as time goes on, because if you just stick with that, well, if it's not working, then Gabby, it's not working. You have to have some degree of flexibility. For you see, if Amundsen's is a story of a supremely confident man who is prepared to take on the world that faces him, Scott's story is that of a man who failed his way to recognition, never learning how to actually lead, and ended up dragging everyone else down with him by failing to trust in the wisdom of others that was more suited to the life of an explorer. He lacked confidence in moments where it mattered. 
He would change his mind randomly and change plans. He believed that anything could be done in just like the traditional British fashion with a stiff upper lip. And when it didn't work, he wouldn't have anything that would be prepared in order to be able to take care of it. If you just threw enough resources and manpower at it, it would work out just fine. But it didn't. Oh God, no, it does not. So Scott's expedition fails the first time around, and he takes the better part of the rest of the decade trying to secure funds and more personnel for another attempt. His trip was publicized, so the whole world knew what it was that he was trying to attempt. But what he didn't know, what none of them knew, was that Odmanson had just changed his mind and he turned Fridolf Nansen's borrowed ship, the Fram, south towards the Antarctic. Unfortunately, that's not the mission that Amundsen had been approved for, because again, remember, all of this stuff was not stuff that he was doing with his own money. This was money that was being donated, being supplied, being, you know, paid for by other people, and he just turned around and did something else because he was supposed to be performing scientific studies in the Arctic Circle, the perfect opportunity for him to reach the North Pole, but when he heard of Admiral Perry's success in reaching the North Pole, he adjusted his plan on the fly to go, no, we're going to the South Pole instead. So what does he do? Well, he ends up leaving in the morning under cover of darkness and tells no one about the change in plans until they end up reaching Madeira in the Atlantic near the Canary Islands. He then sends off a letter to Nansen and the others who funded his, his expedition back home and apologizes to them. Like he straight up sends off a letter where there is simply no way that they're going to be able to catch him to stop him. And he apologizes to them saying that, hey, we're still going to go to the Arctic to perform the work that was assigned to him after he returned. Um, if they end up actually returning. You know, it's one of the situations where it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission, you know. So at first, Nansen was furious, but then he calmed down. This is probably due to the fact that when Amundsen was gone, Nansen ended up actually having a um, love affair with Kathleen Scott. Remember that person that was Robert Scott's wife? Uh, yeah, that person. Yeah, yeah. Nansen and her were getting it on. People in history cheated quite a bit. Oh, huh? absolutely. They did. It was not people talk about all that time of like the sanctity of marriage and how things were in the past. It really is no different than what people do now, except at that time, more often it was more of a closed affair, you could say. Also, Whereas no now social everything media. is social media. Exactly. Because every time I feel like every single time somebody has an affair, so the person they have the affair with is like if the person was famous enough is like hey guess what and then it leaks and it's like a big scandal and everyone's like wow also how many people got caught cheating because somebody else posted a photo of them exactly so i mean honestly it would be pretty much around the same i'm guessing oh, as yeah. i've not publicized yeah and so what ends up happening with that naturally is that it is a bit of a problem and i would say that it's definitely more of an opportunity that people do stuff nowadays because of the prevalence of stuff with social media and information and technology and communication is just they have so much more access to be able to do things than what they did before still toward love affair he calmed down it's fine so the two explorers both set out to the antarctic circle and while in route scott would receive a telegram that would say Odmanson, fram heading to antarctic he didn't realize what it meant until he got to australia and found that Odmanson was already on his way south to the antarctic circle 
and he promptly lost his shit, thinking, oh my god, no, I cannot have any competition. Scott was already nervous, but the Norwegians chasing him down, he started to unravel somewhat internally and just was going crazy because there's no way that after all this crap that he was going to have to deal with that now. Meanwhile, in preparation for his own adventure, Anundsen had selected a who's who of the then current popular polar explorers for his team. He focused on keeping it small and more easily manageable. He didn't have a huge force. He had less than 20 people in total on the expedition. So what he wanted to do was create a team that would be the pinnacle of the explorers, like the best of the best, the Avengers of early polar exploration. This was going to be incredibly valuable for him. One of the early choices that he had was Olaf uh, uh, Bjaland, which I'm probably saying that wrong, but that was his name. He was a champion Norwegian skier who was also skilled in carpentry, and that was going to be incredibly valuable later on when he would manage to reduce the weight of the sledges from 88 kilograms to 22 kilograms, which if you're, if you're doing something like that, that significantly reduces their um, strength and durability normally, but he was able to do it without compromising them, making them incredibly good for transportation. He was so good on his skis that he would often ski in front of the whole group as it was found that the sled dogs just ran better when they had someone that they were chasing. <laughs> Which personally, looking back on that and that little fact, I find that hilarious. It's like that whole thing with our dog, with Booker, is like, does Booker run if we throw a ball? Yes. But does he run more if it looks like we're trying to chase him? He's speeds if it looks like we're trying to chase him. <laughs> oh, yes. And so it was said that he left ski tracks in the snow nearly as straight as a railroad track, just beelining in whatever direction they were trying to go. It was very important for Amundsen to have the right people with the right skills in order to get the job done. So he called up his old second mate from the Yaw and his trip to the Northwest Passage, Helmer Hansen. And Hansen had been taught firsthand from the Nesquik people, as well as how to train and manage sled dogs. He would also be tasked as the master navigator of the ship and would carry the master compass on his sledge. This might not seem like a big deal when the entire reason you're going on a journey is to get specific coordinates before anyone else can. So your navigator takes on a whole new value during this time. It is crucial that you do not lose any time that you know exactly where you're going at all time, because even a delay by an hour or a few days could mean that in a race, someone else gets there first. Another notable team member was Adolf Lindstrom, who had been the cook aboard the Gyoa with Amundsen. He had a way of calming everyone down when times were difficult, and he knew exactly how to work with local animal meat in order to get the most out of it. He was also, by all accounts, just a really cool, fun guy that everyone really liked being around. Amundsen came prepared. He ordered 52 Greenland sled dogs, and each man was assigned a certain amount of dogs to take care of and manage. This would improve morale as the men now had something to do aside from just tortuous levels of struggle and work because they literally got their own sled dog that it's like, yes, of course, this is your work beast that is going to be taking you around in all these places, but also puppy, you get to go play with that dog. That's nice. It was like literally something that was a work animal that was also a form of stress relief, which I find simply lovely. I think that that's an amazing little detail. The party's polar clothing 
would include suits of sealskin from northern Greenland and clothes that were fashioned after the traditional garments of the Nestlik Inuit people from reindeer skins, from wolf skin, Burberry cloth, uh, garbandine, all the material they would need to make good winter waterproof clothing. And the sledges were constructed from Norwegian ash with steel shod runners made from American hickory. Skis also fashioned from hickory with, with, or were extra long in order to try and reduce the likelihood of slipping into any crevices. Because think of it like this. When you are sailing, or not sailing, when you are skiing over the ice and all that stuff that is there, at any given point during slow blindness, it could all just disappear from under you. Like if they were constantly, like if you've seen the, you've seen documentaries of stuff in the Arctic and the Antarctic, where all of a sudden there's just these cracks and crevices that lead down hundreds of feet into nowhere, right? Yeah. So the idea is make your skis extra long, like longer than you normally would. And that way, if you go over something, potentially the speed that you're going to means that your skis are going to get across the crevice before you do. So you don't just fall right in. The tents that they had were the strongest and most practical that probably have ever been used. These were things that had built-in floors and only required a single pole to use. He also even planned ahead to use seal meat that was caught locally in order to help stave off scurvy because, again, they had the experience in all this. And Gabby, do you know what Scott brought on the other side of things? Polar bears. You know, that's a really good guess considering would... the amount of stupidity that happened in this case. He brought ponies. Like little horses? Yeah, like horses. Like polar ponies? No, not polar... There are no polar ponies. Did he bring that them horse blankets? He brought ponies to the Antarctic with coats on them. Like the, the ponies were given their own clothing and stuff that they would have had to wear in order to try and stave off the cold. They got freaking ponies. How are the ponies going to? I mean, horses aren't exactly the best at right. working through snow. Right. Did he bring them snowshoes? Right. Uh, well, yes, there actually were. There would be custom snowshoes that would be used by horses. That is a thing that is that, that is Ooh, done. But... He could have put the ponies on skis. Ski ponies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you see, laughing at my idea is awful leadership skill. You know, you're approaching this in probably one of the most uh, British ways possible, considering how I'm they would just throw men in resources. approaching it like Scott did. Yeah, it's true. He brought horses to the harshest climate on Earth and expected them to not freeze to death. Did they freeze to death? Oh my God, this is going to be bad. Okay, so check this. The British were so sure of themselves. They were so confident that they sent around 80 men, more than double the, the men that was in Amundsen's expedition, on a ship that was smaller than the Fram, which is the ship that Amundsen had, called the Terra Nova. And of course, because they were British, they had the most advanced technology of the day, a diesel motor engine for their sledge. Like the sledges, like the things that they had. They had diesel motor sledges. Not dogs. Motors. So that's faster. They'll be able to make it. They won't even need the ponies. Oh, yeah. You would think for this year. Now, Amundsen had heard about these and they made him very nervous. Because remember that whole thing that I talked about with experimental technology and how things is things can go wrong very fast with these. Yeah. He feared that if you did something like that, that that could be the difference maker in who reached the pole first. Because, yes, they were fast and impressive. And, yes, they were things that could potentially help him get there. But also they could go wrong. And if they did go wrong, you were going to need someone who could fix them. 
and Scott had neglected to bring an actual engineer who could fix them. But not only that, in the dumbest possible thing that I could possibly ever say, he didn't bring any replacement parts for the sledges. So when they broke down, which inevitably, this is 1903 here, technology is going to break down. In today's day and age, technology is still going to break down. It is not perfect and things will happen. You need to have parts. So when they broke down, they required the sketchiest of repairs from amateur mechanics to get them going again, who had no idea what they were actually doing. One of them even fell through the sea ice into the ocean and was just lost forever. The other two that they had proved to be no more useful to work around this, and they unloaded the motor sledges and had to put everything onto their own sleds and haul them through just sheer manpower. It sounds so dumb. Amundsen's plan, on the other hand, was significantly smarter. So he started out on the Ross Ice Shelf, and the Ross Ice Shelf is a vast expanse of sea ice that is hundreds of feet thick. This thing is massive, and it is frozen solid year-round. Its edge on the sea is one of the few places in the world where icebergs are actually born. And so setting up base camp on the shelf had never actually been done before. But Amundsen knew that he would have a much better position if he could cross the Ross Ice Shelf, an area the size of France and head straight up the Transarctic Mountains on the edge of the solid land past the shelf. So he set out from the coast, and with each successive trip into the wilderness, he and his team would set up a supply depot in order to recover from the previous leg. The dogs worked wonderfully. Because you have to think at this time that each one of them are going, you can't just establish a camp and then just stay there. You have to go out a certain amount of distance, establish a camp, go back. Go out, establish a camp, go back. And you have to keep on setting up these routes in order to be able to have solid supply points. He also set up holes with black flags on them every half mile along the route. And so even in blizzard conditions, it was hard to miss the flag. Because you think if it was red or light blue or some other kind of color that wouldn't really stand out as much, it might be a bit more difficult. But black in the Arctic, well, that is something that is going to stand out more. And so Scott had an easier but longer route that was following the Ernest Shackleton's previous expedition route up the Beardmore Glacier. His idea was to go and set up depots as well, but they spaced them out way further apart. That, and also at the same time, they didn't have any seal meat. They just had the rations they had taken with them. So did they get scurvy? Oh God, it's going to get bad. Now I'm going to explain that. This meant that the few dogs that Scott had taken, as well as the ponies, we're not really going to have much energy to be able to move at top speed. He then actually turned around and tried to use the sled dogs. And you know what was really frustrating, Gabby? He was annoyed to find out just how much better they worked than man hauling like he had been doing for this entire time. In fact, Scott got so desperate that at one point he had each of his men shoot one of the dogs and then fed them to the remaining dogs in order to try and save on rations. Now he has less dogs. Oh, yeah. So he was pissed also off. Also dog cannibalism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it was something that they would do. So Amundsen was averaging around 30 kilometers a day. And Scott was lucky to make a third of that. Only 10. One of the ponies that they had dropped dead. Another fell through the ice and ended up drowning. 
and they finally made it to the edge of the Antarctic Plateau, where they knew the temperature was going to drop and the terrain was going to get near vertical in places. And Scott and his men were going to have to drag their stuff up it. So let me take a second to explain just how absolutely insane this is. So the way that Antarctica is shaped can be described as a giant bowl for anyone who is listening. On the top of that bowl, stretched to the edges, at least on the side of the continent these explorers approached, is the Antarctic Plateau. This is a massive expanse of flat ice. And the high elevations of the Antarctic Plateau, combined with its high latitudes and its extremely long, sunless winters, mean that the temperature here was the lowest in the world most years, falling as low as negative 92 degrees Celsius or minus 134 degrees Fahrenheit. And now you may wonder, okay, well, why is it called a plateau? Well, that is because the edges of that bowl are mountain ranges. And the milk in this cereal bowl is thousands upon thousands of kilometers of ice that are dozens, if not hundreds of feet thick in places. And at the edge, where it kind of spills over through the edge of the bowl, the ice comes down through mountain valleys, forming giant glaciers and thousands of deadly crevices. Amundsen's team, with their dogs and sleds, managed relatively well with the over 2,000-foot vertical hike up the crevices, and not a single man or dog was lost during this time. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Amundsen's planning was so precise he had even accounted for the weight of the dogs before going up the Axel Herberg Glacier and over the top of the mountains, and then gave the order for the men to take one of the dogs each and shoot it 
so that the remaining dogs would have food to sustain their energy and pace while the remaining race to the pole. And this was the hardest part of the entire ordeal for most of the men. They, they were not happy about this, but in order for them to achieve what they did, it was necessary. Meanwhile, Scott and his men had to drag all their gear up a mountain without any assistance. So even through this route, though it was easier, it slowed them down to the point where it wasn't even a race anymore. Amundsen's plan was going to allow him to move at three times the daily pace of Scott and his men. Scott had known of the existence of the plateau and had planned to shoot the ponies when they arrived. And when they did, it was a crushing blow to their morale as they had grown attached to these ponies by then. They were having to kill off all of their animals. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, Scott, don't like that guy. I know. And, you know, he shot Um, ponies and dogs. Amundsen had to shoot his dogs too, some of them. Yeah, but he still accounted for the weight of his dogs and everything. No. Yeah, he had to account for the weight of his dogs for this so that they figured by that time they wanted to reduce their weight further. He I know, but he didn't feed his dogs, his other dogs. That was part of the rations, yeah. It's just he didn't do it immediately early and as an extreme measure. He did it precisely in order to calculate the best amount for optimal speed moving forward. Also the ponies. Yeah, the whole ponies thing was stupid just from the beginning. That was straight up stupidity. My thing is just Scott didn't plan anything at all. Not even a little bit. Yeah. So Amundsen and his team made such a good pace that on December 14th, 1911, Olaf Bjaland, the root leader, ended up dropping back to Scott and told him that he should lead the group. This was a thinly veiled attempt to let the leader of the expedition take the lead for the final leg of the journey so that he could be the first person to reach the pole. They got back to the appointed coordinates and learning from Frederick Cook's disputed first visit to the North Pole, not recognized because of the shoddy record keeping, Amundsen had Hansen, the navigator, ski in a box around the location just to make sure that they had actually touched the side of the pole. Like they didn't know that they were there. And because of record keeping and because everything there, they wanted to make sure, hey, we don't know if we actually are here. They went around in a giant square around it to verify their coordinates and Only then, after using a compass and a sextant, Amundsen and Hansen had gotten them within 200 yards of the South Pole through blizzards, through temperatures that were below minus 40 degrees Celsius, and with the dangers of disorientation, scurvy, mental breakdown, death, all of that there, they realized we are here. And so they set up camp and they stayed for four days. And the first order of business was to raise the Norwegian flag above their camp, which they left standing for the British to see when they arrived, which, mind you, was five weeks later. Scott and his men were dragging themselves across the ice when they spotted a dark lump on the horizon. And as they got closer, they realized it was Amundsen's camp. When he went inside the Norwegian's tent, Scott found a letter that was left to him stating for the British to use anything of value they could at the camp and a letter to deliver to King Hakon VII should he not make it back home after reaching the pole. He had traveled thousands of miles only to be turned into a glorified mailman at the last second. See, I don't like that outlook. He traveled thousands of miles to be the second man at the pole. So correct. Still a win. Correct. Silver medal is a thing. 
Yeah. They were over a month late, though, and they were in terrible shape at this time. Some of his men had gotten frostbite already. They were running low on food because Scott had added a fifth man to the team for the last leg of the journey, but they still had the same amount of rations as they did before they left in the first place. Yeah, I'm looking at your eyes right now. They're looking at this like, what the hell are you talking about? They added another guy, but didn't add more food? Yes. The thing is, again, Scott pisses me off because it's just poor planning. It's a lot of poor planning, and I think a lot of pride. Like just hubris, hubris. Yeah. Like they think they were just, they were British. So they were better. They had better tech. So they didn't really have to do all that planning. Or maybe he just didn't know. He didn't have the experience. Maybe. To know. It's all of it. It likely is, as you said, all of it combined. Like hindsight is twenty twenty, But also Amundsen had not done this trek and he planned for it. Yep. Or maybe Norwegians are just better. They were more experienced in the matter, I can tell you that much. And this guy was one who'd spent his entire life preparing for this. That is all he wanted to do. So they stayed a few days and they turned back, feeling as though they had just lost everything. But as it turns out, they hadn't lost everything. Yet. What do you mean yet? We're going to get into that. So Scott and his men were already suffering from the effects of scurvy. Combined with orders for resupply, they got confused, causing them to miss supply drops. Scott and his men just didn't have enough food or energy to make it back. First, the injury started. Scott fell and hurt his shoulder. One man's toes turned black, gaunt, hungry, and frostbitten. The men were essentially walking ghosts by this point. And Scott would write darkly in his diary, the poll, yes, but under very different circumstances than expected. Great God. This is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have labored to it without the reward of priority. Like literally, this place sucks. We made it, but at what cost? Because we weren't even first. And so on their way back, Scott and his men would have to face the brutal realities of poor planning and survival environments. Scott had left himself no safety margin with his food supplies. He was in a race against time to make it back to the rest of his crew. And they had five days to make it back and five days of food exactly. He hadn't set sufficient markers to get back to his supply depot. He had set no markers to guide him back down the glacier to head back. And from the 88 degree mark, men started losing fingernails. And that night, another had to have his tooth removed with a set of pliers. It hurt so much. One man was fixing a sledge and ended up injuring his hand. It refused to heal and only slowed him down. Another man's leg was injured as he had to drag it with each step, and they slowly started losing their minds. The first man to completely lose it realized that he was dragging them down and stopped to fix his boots. The rest of the group told him to keep up, and when they realized he never caught up to the group, went back for him, they found him in a coma, and he died that night. They got to one of their depots, and they dug up one of the dead ponies in order to have a full stomach for the first time in weeks. And there were four men left at this point, and they were running really low on fuel for warmth. Okay, I was mad he killed the ponies, but honestly, food. So yeah. maybe we could call it some good planning on his part. Yeah. And the reason why this happened here is because Amundsen, on one hand, had stored his paraffin fuel correctly. Scott didn't. And so by the time they got back to the depots, what had started as gallons of fuel turned into less than a quart. The temperature was now dropping, and it was less than 40 degrees Celsius out. A man by the name of Oates, the one whose feet had turned black, lost his ability to walk due to the pain. 
One of the most disturbing symptoms of scurvy is that it causes the skin to not heal and break down easily. And Oates had an old war injury, a bullet to the hip that had left a massive scar. And due to his scurvy, the scar began to deteriorate and this decade-old wound reopened, which honestly had to have been agonizing. The next morning, Oates dragged his body over to the team and stopped at the entrance to the tent, holding the flap and saying, I'm just going outside for a while and maybe some time. Three pairs of eyes would stare back silently, and then someone made a half-hearted attempt to stop him. Realizing it was futile, they just let him go. He was never seen again. The last three men remaining were Scott and two other men named Wilson and Bowers. Scott's foot was now threatening to gangrene. The two other men were in better shape and actually could have probably made it back, but for some reason, some unknown reason, they just stayed and resigned themselves to death. They lay in their sleeping bags for nine days till their last of their food and fuel gave out, and as their lives slipped away in the blizzards and the wind to the South Pole, they died. Meanwhile, Amundsen got back to Hobart, Australia, and he sent private telegrams to his benefactors, as well as Nansen and King Hack on the 7th. He had made it. The local boy did good, and he was going to be coming home soon. And half a world away, Kathleen Scott and Fridhoff Nansen were um, having fun in a Paris hotel while Robert Scott was freezing to death. Imagine that. You're dying on one side of the world and your wife is cheating on you. On the, she really didn't give a hoot. She was like, this man is not coming back. <laughs> I'm yeah. just going to move on. They even made plans for a new life, actually, after Scott got back. You're joking. Nope, that they were just going to go. But when he didn't return, they began to argue. Kathleen always had uh, a distinct disdain for Amundsen, and she didn't choose to hide it. Nansen, of course, was friends with Amundsen, loved this guy, and so he defended his protege's honor and relationship between the two of them just fell apart. Because now, of course, you know, his protege was the one that was racing against her her husband, who she was cheating on. But, you know, it's like even though they were, she was cheating on him, she still didn't like the other guy. It's just a whole stupid relationship in the first place that why that would happen here. And it just all broke down. Amundsen was on a speaking tour in Madison, Wisconsin, when he heard the news of Scott's demise. And how he would respond to it was saying, horrible, horrible, was his first response. But when given time to compose himself, he ended up making a public announcement that said, Captain Scott left a record for honesty, for sincerity, for bravery, and for everything that makes a man. He was also reported to have said, I would gladly forgo any honor or money if thereby I could have saved Scott his terrible death. And in his death, Robert Scott would effectively become a martyr. When hearing of the events, Ernest Shackleton was quoted to have said, the country would prefer a dead lion over a live donkey. His death somehow managed to wipe away most of his actions, like all of his stupid planning, all of his incompetence, everything that he did to screw stuff up, all of that was wiped away because it was simply too sad that he died. So he did freeze to death. Oh yeah. And all of his stuff, like all of these things that we're learning about here, this would not be publicized for decades after his death. A story ended up being contrived that Oates had sacrificed himself for his companions willingly, not out of desperation and mid-insanity, and Kathleen Scott was later given the title of Lady Scott as though her husband had been knighted while still alive. And mind you, remember, she was cheating on him the entire time. 
The British had been dealt a massive blow, and it was now visible that they were not going to be impervious to failure. You couldn't just throw the latest technology and men and money at a situation. You actually had to do things smartly. But the tabloids in Britain, no. They spun this massive, beautiful story of an Englishman performing his duty at all costs, no matter what. I mean, honestly, he died, so yeah. Yeah. It's fitting. And as for Nansen, he would end up being appointed as Norway's first minister to Britain and then would work for the Red Cross to help and try and repatriate hundreds of thousands of war refugees after World War I. He would stay a prominent diplomat and politician in service of Norway for most of the rest of his life. And as for Amundsen, he would move on to other stuff. He always kept his ear to the ground when it came to new tech. He bought an early model airplane and he learned to fly with the goal of being the first person to fly over the Arctic. And he did so and became the first person to reach both of the Earth's poles. While searching for survivors of the downed airship Italia, Amundsen was in a plane that was looking for survivors when it entered a huge bank of fog and disappeared. He was never seen again. But knowing that he had disappeared nearly 25 years to the day after his, his successful trip through the Northwest Passage while flying over the Arctic, honestly, in the end, I'd have to say that even though it is sad, it is the only fitting death for the man who would be known as the last Viking, Roald Amundsen, Norway's favorite son. Wow. And that is the end of that. Honestly, when talking about a story like this, it really is something that it's not just a, um, it's not a comedy. It's not even just a tragedy. It's a drama filled with anything and everything in it. And I find the story of that for the Arctic exploration to be incredible. Because really, to this day, when we are talking about the extremes of humanity and the world, there are two places on this earth that even though we have been able to explore like the, like the Arctic and the Antarctic, even though we've been able to do these things, the bottom of the ocean and large swaths of the Arctic are still to this day things that we do not understand. That and the rainforest and all these aspects that even with all of our technology today, it is not something that we truly understand. And they did this back in the early 1900s. With a lot of sacrifice, to be fair. But they still did it. It's incredible. But anyway, that is the end of today's story. And also, everyone, before we go ahead and end things here today, it is time for today's family history with the one that I have chosen today coming from Ethan York, which says, Hello, Stucky. My name is Ethan York, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about my family history. So even though I'm related to Sergeant Alvin C. York, who fought in the Great War, which I have to say is really cool, by the way, that you even sent that in, that is not the story I want to tell you. What I want to tell you is about my grandpa, Joe York. See, Grandpa was born in 1954 in Nebraska, the seventh of ten kids. Oh man, that is, that is a lot. He grew up helping the family's trash business and then his dad's car dealership after that until his dad passed away when he was 15. When he was 17, he finished high school and tried to enlist in the U.S. Navy, but because he was 17, he had to wait until he was 18, so he spent the better part of a year traveling with his wrestling team and went toe-to-toe with a 400-pound sumo wrestler when he was only 160 pounds and almost won. That is amazing. When my grandpa finally joined the Navy, he was stationed in Pensacola, Florida. On one of his tours of duty, they had just docked in Japan, and one of the privates who had just been promoted was trying to screw around with my grandpa, so he told him 
that in order to get on shore, he had to drop and give him 200 push-ups. So my grandpa basically said, screw that, and threw the guy overboard and went on his way. When he got back, he learned that the officer he had thrown overboard was actually the captain's son, so he spent the rest of the tour in jail just doing whatever he wanted, and after he left the Navy, he moved to Texas, where he met my grandma, and within a year of their meeting, they were married, and they would end up having eight children, including my dad, and grandpa would work in construction until he retired, after which he would love cooking, fishing, playing cribbage, and spending time with his family. He sadly passed away in 2021. Thank you for your podcast, and I look forward to hearing it on Spotify every week. And I hope to be a patron, but I can't yet. I look forward to listening to you next week. Goodbye. Thank you very much, Ethan. And thank you for that little, uh, that little story in here. It, it makes me real glad when people don't just talk about the stuff that is uh, the heroics of individuals. Like, as you said, despite being related to Alvin C. York, that you have this really cool story with your grandfather. And I, I find that hilarious. And I can relate that on my own level. I will say this because my grandfather was a bomber pilot back in Vietnam. And he had a, I'm going to say right now, he had a tendency to argue with his superiors. There is a reason why, despite graduating from West Point, that he never made it beyond really second lieutenant, because he did not play the politics game when it came to his higher ups. Oh, man, there were some problems there. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate all of you for checking in with us here. And please let us know what it is that you'd like to see next. Make sure to send in your family histories. Do everything you possibly can because we love to hear from you all. And make sure to also leave us a review if you can on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on. I appreciate all of you. And goodbye, my friends. Goodbye. Goodbye.